Thank you for joining us. This broadcast is made possible by the Lord and the donations of brethren like yourself. If you would like to give a donation to help keep this broadcast on the air, please visit llgive.com. Thank you and shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Thank you for joining us here at B'nai this week. My name is Ephraim Judah. I'm with Lion and Lamb Ministries. And from our family to yours, thank you for inviting us in each and every week where we can join together as an internet congregation where we can worship the Lord, we can do blessings, we can set apart the Sabbath, and we can hear from the weekly Torah portion. A couple of announcements that we have for this week. Many of us are preparing for um, uh, Passover. It's coming up in a couple of months. Uh, we have a lot of products that uh, are in our marketplace. If you go to MessianicMarketplace.com and search Passover, there's a great deal of products that you can uh, get. It's never too early to start preparing for the annual feast cycle and the uh, feast of Passover and unleavened bread and first fruits is coming up here. It'll be with us uh, before you know it. And so we encourage you to uh, prepare your hearts for the new feast cycle as we approach the feast of Passover. Also, uh, in the in June, we have our uh, Shavuot gathering that will be at a hotel in Dallas. Uh, that is July, June 7th through 9. We have a hotel conference there. If you go to ShavuotEvent.com, you can uh, go get all the information there. If you've already registered, we encourage you now to uh, make your arrangements with the hotel. We have a certain number of rooms blocked off for that. If you say you're with the Lion and Lamb Shavuot event, uh, you can get that room rate that we have with that hotel. So we encourage you to prepare for that feast as well. And then Camp Yeshua, our Messianic Youth Summer Camp, is coming up in July, July 14th through 19th. Registration is still open for that. We still have some spots open for some youth. So if you've been delaying, we encourage you to get registered at CampYeshua.com and um, have a once-in-a-lifetime experience uh, at our youth camp where we'll have over 300 believers there in one place, staff, junior staff, and we have a wonderful time there. So we encourage you to get registered for that and we'll have a wonderful time there. Uh, if you'd like to participate or if you are unable to come to any of these events, but you perhaps would like to help others to uh, attend the either Shavuot or Camp Yeshua, you can make a donation to the Lynn Judah Memorial Fund. That money is used specifically to help people to pe- help cover their registration cost for those events. And so if, you, uh, if you're stirred in your heart to give, we greatly appreciate that and it provides a wonderful blessing to some of the brethren to be able to attend our events here at Lion and Lamb Ministries. Once again, thank you for joining us here on this Erev Shabbat. Now let us set apart the Sabbath with the Kiddush and the family blessings. Shabbat Shalom. We're the Judah family and welcome to our home. Please join us as we usher in the Sabbath. 
Ready? Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has sanctified us by your commandments and has commanded us to be a light unto the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah, the light of the world. Amen. Amen. And now the Kiddush, blessing over the cup. Baruch Eloheinu melech haolam Borei Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Now the Hamotzi, blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min we give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atarunai, Eloheinu melech haolam, hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. <laughs> Husbands, let's bless our wives. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for our wonderful wives that you've given to us, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, for beautiful wives of Proverbs. Thank you, Lord, for my wife and the blessing that she is to our home and to our family. Bless her, encourage her, and strengthen her as she teaches and educates the children, as she wakes up in the morning to take care of them and see about the ways of the household. Father, I thank you for the wonderful blessing she is to me and to our home. I pray that you would encourage her and strengthen her and pour out your very best blessing upon her on this Sabbath day. So we love you and bless you and thank you for all of these things, Lord. In Yeshua's name, amen. amen. Now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. <laughs> now let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Bahu et Arunai Hamvorach, Baruch Arunai Hamvorach Leolaham Bahed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michamocha. Michamocha, Bahelim Adonai. Mi chamocha, 
har bachodesh no ratechilot o se Now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch atah Adonai, Elheinu melech haolam, asher natan lanu et derech ha-Yeshua b'Mashiach Yeshua. All together. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. Veshamru v'nei Yisrael et ha-Shabbat, la-asot et ha-Shabbat, la-drotam b'rit olam, b'nei ovayom b'nei Yisrael, o-thi le-olam, k'sheshet yamim asadonai et ha-Shamayim v'et ha-Retz v'yom ha-Shavi, Shabbat v'yinafash. All together. The children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and on the seventh day he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema, if you would all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad Baruch Shem Kivod Mahuto Leolam Vayed Yeshua Hamashiach Hu Adonai Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be his name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, he is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'achavta. Ve'achavta et Adonai ochecha b'chol levavcha uv'kol nashicha uv'chol meodecha v'heyu ha'devarim ha'ale asher nechim e'zavcha ha'yom alevavcha v'shinantam l'avenecha V'deparadabam b'shivtecha, b'yetecha, uv'lechtecha, v'derech u'shakbika, uv'kumika. U'kheshatam la'ota yadecha, v'heyu la'totafot b'inenecha, u'chetatam ha'mazuzot b'techa, uv'isharecha. All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen.
Great. 
If you would, please turn your Bibles to the book of Exodus, to chapter 25, where our Torah portion will begin for this week. As always, as you open up the word of the Lord, let me do the blessing before the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam Asher b'chabanu mechol ha'amim Venatan lanu et torato Baruch atah Adonai nonten ha-torah ha'amein Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Our Torah portion this week is entitled Terumah, which comes from the first verse of chapter 25, where it talks about the Lord speaking to Moses, telling him to speak to the children of Israel that they might bring an offering to the Lord. That word offering is Terumah. Our Torah portion will covers three chapters in the book of Exodus, chapters 25, 26, and most of chapter 27. And this is the time in which Moses has gone back up onto the mountain, about back up to Mount Sinai to receive the instruction, more instruction from the Lord. 
We've already come to Mount Sinai. We've heard the Ten Words or the Ten Commandments from God. And then we've been given, Moses was given the Book of the Law, which had all of the instructions of how the children of Israel were to act or behave. Commandments for them to keep with one another. Commandments outline what's the difference between murder and manslaughter. And what's the, the responsibilities of an owner of various properties. And that covered the way the children of Israel were to act amongst one another. Now Moses has been called back up onto the mountain and has now been given all of this instruction now where we are going to build a tabernacle for the Most High God. A tabernacle so that he might dwell amongst his people. See, he's wanting to establish a kingdom. He's wanting to establish a place where he is the king, where he can come and rule and reign in this place. But before we get to that point, we have to prepare ourselves as servants of God to walk uprightly before him, to treat our neighbors with respect so that we have law and order and rule. Then he, being the worthy one, being the one who is all-powerful and is coming down to then be and dwell in that place, with us, he is now establishing that authority, establishing that place where he is going to come and to dwell. Very interesting here as our book of, or as our Torah cycle and the book of Exodus now shifts. We're no longer talking about the Exodus of the children of Israel leaving Egypt. They've left Egypt. They've left Egypt. Now God is making covenant with them. What God is continuing to do here in the book of Shemot, the book of names, as it's called in the Hebrew, God is continuing to reveal his heart to us. He's continuing to reveal what he wants to do when he wants to dwell with these people. And he's revealing his character to us. The character of a God who is loving and compassionate. And he's merciful, but he's also just. And he always acts with righteous justice and will not let the guilty go unpunished. And he's revealing his character to us. The book of Exodus has now shifted. We're now going to spend a great deal of time talking about this place that God is going to dwell amongst the children of Israel. I believe I read somewhere that over 40 chapters of our scripture are devoted to the structure and the function of the tabernacle or the temple of God. We'll begin here in the last 15 chapters of the book of Exodus from chapters 25 to 40 all deal with the subject of the tabernacle with the exception of one where we uh, talk about the sin of the golden calf. We'll unfortunately have to cover that in next week's portion. But most of of the rest of the book of Exodus all has to do with this tabernacle. And then when we turn books to the book of Leviticus, it then talks about the priesthood and how they were to work and be in service of the tabernacle. And then you will go even into the prophets, into the prophet Ezekiel, and he will have entire chapters that are devoted to the pattern and form of the, ta- of the temple that will be in the kingdom. And so this whole subject of God's dwelling place is very important to us. If we simply just look at the amount of Scripture and the amount of the words of God that are devoted to this topic, we have to come look and understand, wait a minute, there's something very important here being established. Now, 
some who might look back at some of these passages of Scripture back in the book of Exodus, and it would, for many of our New Testament believers who have a testimony of believing in Yeshua the Messiah, they might look back at some of these passages and think that they are very mundane, that they don't have as much to do with the, a believer today. We're talking about this temporary tent, tabernacle, that's going to be built, that it's not here anymore. Now, this tabernacle was also the pattern of the permanent temples that stood in Jerusalem, two temples that were built. However, those temples aren't here anymore. So when one might look in our modern day and say, man, all of these things, what do they really have to do with a believer today? And once you get into all the sacrifices described in the book of Leviticus, many people, it starts to become a little bit of a taboo subject. You start talking about, wow, did these people really kill all these animals in offering and giving to God? And we try to, in our modern mind, sometimes try to determine, well, is this stuff really important to me today? However, if you're a Bible-believing Christian, you've got to believe that it's all like, man, these, this, this book that we have in front of us that we're instructed, to, this is the Word of God. And if you're going to sit here, you, we should never look at any passage of Scripture and think that it is null and void, has no uh, value to it. The Messiah himself said that not one stroke or letter shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Uh, heaven and earth are still here today as witness. The, all of these words still stand today. God gave this instruction for these things to be built. And he's given us instruction for how we are to worship him. What we instead should do, instead of looking at passages of Scripture and wonder if it's applicable for us today, why don't we look at these passages of Scripture and figure out how they can be made applicable to us today? This is the Word of God. These are instructions. We've got to figure out how to apply them to us as a believer today. And I believe there is a very simple way to do that. And in fact, it goes back to every person who has a testimony of believing in Jesus the Messiah. Because we tell young kids when they have become saved, and I mean, how many times do you talk to somebody and ask them if they're a believer or somebody passes away, and, and many believers will ask and say, well, were they saved? Well, what does that mean? What, what, we th- what we tend to really look at that as is that we see Christians who've come into the faith, one of the first things we ever ask them to do is to pray to the Lord and ask for them to invite the Messiah, Jesus Yeshua, into their heart. Kind of an interesting sort of thing. I mean, I remember as a kid not thinking that this uh, this sounded kind of weird to me. It's all like, okay, M- Messiah, does that mean he's kind of like a superhero that can shrink down really small and then live inside my heart? Or obviously it's a spiritual principle that we ask. And so we ask the Lord to invite him into our heart. Well, what does that really mean? What that really means is this, is that our heart has been created to be a dwelling place for the Most High God. And we are to pray to him and invite him into our life. Now, that comes with some conditions. That comes with a higher standard, us as believers. We must walk uprightly before him. We must make sure we have a clean and a pure heart for him to dwell in. And that is the most important thing as we prepare, as we are believers. I I dare say there are people who have prayed and invited the Lord into their heart. But the problem is, is the life that they choose to live, they have a great deal of darkness and uncleanliness inside their bodies, inside their lives. And is that necessarily a place that the Messiah himself has said and God has said that he will dwell in? Not necessarily. There is a pattern, there is a structure, there is an order 
to what the dwelling place of God is supposed to look like. And that is described for us here at the end of the book of Exodus. Through Moses, these things and this description of God's dwelling place is given to us. There is an order to it. There is a purpose to what is in there. And there is a cleanliness and a pureness. And there is a value that is assigned to this dwelling place that God dwells in. And we should look, as we enter into this um, passage of Scripture, and we'll be talking about it for several weeks um, for the next couple of Torah portions, we have to go in with an idea and a mindset that we are examining what our hearts and what our bodies should look like and be prepared for so that they might be a place that is an acceptable dwelling place for the Most High God. So that His glory will come and dwell within our hearts and inside our lives. That is one of the most Christian things I could possibly say. We must be held to a higher standard than the rest of the world because we are the vessels that carry the Most High God. And that is every instruction that we will go into for the next couple of weeks. We should examine inside of our hearts and say, look, is our life structured in such a way? Is our life clean and prepared and ready in the way God desires his dwelling place to be? Do we pattern our bodies and our lives and our own spiritual hearts in the same way? Do we pattern our physical houses in the same way that God desires to dwell? Whenever we say we want to invite the Lord into our homes, when we pray every Sabbath day or every meal, and we invite the Lord to be present in our lives and we invite him into our homes, are our, is our homes established and clean and prepared in the same way that this tabernacle was prepared? Let that be a primer to you as you think and as we go through these instructions that we are thinking about those things in our own personal lives as we talk about what the tabernacle of God actually looked like and what its structure was. All of these instructions are going to be given to us twice in the book of Exodus. Here, God is speaking to Moses. God is showing Moses the pattern of what these things looked like in heaven. And later on, in at toward the, further into the end of the book of Exodus, will be actually when the children of Israel physically build and establish the tabernacle. And there are some passages here that are almost repeated verbatim how they are created, and it's repeated for us twice in the book of Exodus. What can we learn from that? One, we have are establishing two types of houses here. We're establishing a spiritual house, and we're establishing a physical house. Because when God operates, God is a spiritual being, and we believe that he is beyond the physical world, that that there is a metaphysical essence to who God is, but we also have the physical world that we live in today. And we believe God is present in both. And so whenever we're describing something, God has a way of saying something and and be speaking not only of a spiritual concept, but also of a physical action as well. So yes, he's commanding us to build a physical temple and a tabernacle here in the wilderness for him to dwell in. But he's also giving us instruction to build it spiritually and to establish a spiritual dwelling for God. Let me read here at the first part of Exodus chapter 25, and let me see if I can bring out a few more of these things, this idea that not only is it about the form and the structure of the tabernacle, but it also is about the function of the tabernacle. Exodus chapter 25, verse 1. 
Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering. From everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. And this is the offering which you shall take from them. Gold, silver, bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen, and goat's hair. Ram skins dyed red, badger skins and acacia wood, oil for the light, spices for the anointing oil and for the sweet incense, onyx stones and stones that will be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. According to all that I show you, this is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings. Just so you shall make it. Very interesting here. I love this tour portion because there's so many areas and avenues we can talk about. Much of it has to do with, it starts from the very beginning, this has to do with one's heart. Because the offering to give, to build these things, had to be from one's heart. Willingly of their heart. This wasn't compelled of them to say, each of you that has gold, give it to the construction of the tabernacle. No. Those of you with a willing heart. This tabernacle was not going to be built or established unless there was a person or persons within the congregation of Israel who had a heart that was softened and prepared for God to dwell with them. If these men's hearts were so hard, if they were not ready for the presence of God, this tabernacle was not going to be built. Each of these people had to have a willing heart to give these things for these things to be constructed. In the same way we teach people to have a belief in God, if you're going to invite the Lord to dwell in your heart, you have to be of a willing heart. You have to ask for it. It is dependent upon an action on your part before this is going to happen. Before God is going to dwell with you, within you, or amongst you. That's the other amazing thing. If you go into the Hebrew, that part where I said that I may build a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them. In the Hebrew, that literally can mean within them. And so I love the fact that we kind of have two ideas here. One, yes, we are building a tabernacle so that the almighty creator of heaven and earth will be a neighbor to all of the children of Israel. Everyone has their tents. Everyone is ordered in martial array. we got all the 12 tribes. And the Lord himself is going to come and dwell. And he, we're going to build a tent for him. And he's going to be neighbors with all of the camp of Israel. Literally, physically, he's going to dwell there. But then also he desires to dwell Within them, this is that spiritual aspect that I was talking about. And going back to all the things that I've say, I have said, and when you look at the children of Israel, well, they're going to go into the wilderness, and they're going to we're going to read all the stories of the things that happened to them. And I believe from the very beginning, God desired to dwell within their hearts. He desired to dwell within them more so than the establishment of this tabernacle. All of these instructions are coming after the children of Israel said, Moses, you go up on the mountain, whatever he says, we will do. After they basically stopped God from speaking into their lives any longer, that God was willing to write his covenant, his commandments upon their hearts. And if he had been given the chance to continue to speak and the children of Israel continued to receive those things, not only would the Ten Commandments have been written upon their heart, coming from the voice that created heavens and earth, 
but also all of the mishpatim, the judgments and ordinances, would be written upon their heart, and all of the instructions for the building of the tabernacle. If God was still speaking, he's speaking through Moses, he would have spoken those things into existence inside the hearts of the people. This was what God intended to do, but the children of Israel were not ready. After the Ten Commandments were spoken, they then said, Moses, if we hear his voice any longer, we will surely die. You go up, you go get the instruction. And what comes out after that is, now we have to build a physical tabernacle. I believe if our hearts are truly ready to receive the presence of God, that we then can receive that presence and God establishes all of his law, all of his commandments, all of his priesthood, all of the tabernacle within the hearts of his people if we are ready to receive it. And it begins talking about that from the very beginning. If you have a willing heart, a willing heart is what is necessary for these things to be made. Now, one of the other things that's interesting is we go into the things that were given for the creation of the tabernacle. You look and you see uh, we're donating anointing oil to be made or to give light for the menorah that's going to be built. Stones for the ephod, the breastplate. All of these things are not necessarily materials that go into the physical construction of the tabernacle. These are materials that are going to go into the actions and the people that work within the tabernacle, these are all necessary for the tabernacle to be established. It's not just about form of what the tabernacle looked like and what it was made of, but what we are emphasizing from the very beginning is what is its function going to be? What is going to happen in this place as it is being built and established? I heard a great quote from Dr. David Jones. He asked this, if we, I was to take a pencil, and I held up a pencil, and I said, describe a pencil to me. Some people on the initial, right off the bat, what they would say is, oh, well, it's made of wood and graphite, and it's painted yellow, and it has a little metal thing on the end, and an eraser, and that's what a pencil looks like. Other people might take a different approach to it and say, a pencil is a writing utensil. A pencil is something that can take an idea that's in your head and put it down on a piece of paper, and this is what a pencil does. Now, both descriptions are not untrue, but one, it's, is, the focus is upon its form, while another is focused on its function. We have to focus on both if we are truly to understand everything that a pencil means, represents, or can do. And that is also what the tabernacle will reflect, not only in form, but also in function and what it is meant to do. The first thing that's going to be built and the first thing that's shown to Moses for it to be constructed is the Ark of the Covenant. Let me read here now verse 10, going into the details of the building of the Ark of the Covenant. And they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and a half shall be its width, a cubit and a half shall be its height, and you shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and out you shall overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold all around. And you shall cast four rings of gold for it. Put them on the four corners. Two rings shall be on one side and two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and you shall overlay them with gold. And you shall put poles in the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark and the ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony which I will give you. 
It continues on. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work, that you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherubim on one end and one cherub on the other on the other end, and you shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it in one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above, covering the mercy seat with their wings. And they shall face one another, and the faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark. And the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And the ark and its ark... And in the ark you shall put... Oh, I'm sorry. And there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony, about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. The first thing that's being created is this ark of the covenant. Now, many people have seen depictions of this thing. We have a movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, that is all surrounding this amazing piece that was created by the children of Israel of people wondering what this thing looked like. But again, we have the description of what it looked like. You can see there from the very first furnishing that we are constructing in our scripture is that there is a great amount of exacting detail to it. The exact size that it is, the exact construction of it, the poles, the rings on every corner. There's two cherubim that are on top of it. They are facing the seat. Their wings are extended over the mercy seat and above the mercy seat. And we have a description exacting of what it looks like, what its form is. But then we also have the description there at the end that I read that is what its function is. This is the place where it says that God will dwell. He will speak to us from above the mercy seat. This is the very throne of God that is being created here. And that he will judge and he will, us from this seat. And he will give us the commandments to the children of Israel. This is the full function of it. Is that it is the very throne of God. Inside it will have the testimony that God will give. When it's all said and done, what is inside the, the um, Ark of the Covenant will be the tablets of stone that God has given the commandments, the Ten Commandments written on tablets of stone. Not the first set of tablets, because we'll get into that into the details of that, that there was one set of tablets that was created by God, cut by God, written by the finger of God, that will be broken because of the sin of the children of Israel and the golden calf. There will be a second set of tablets that is cut by Moses, but then written by the finger of God. That is what will end up inside the Ark of the Testimony. In addition to that, there will be the rod of Aaron that will bud in a future story as well. That will be in the Ark as well, as a symbol and a witness to us. Also, a jar of manna will be placed in the um, Ark of the Covenant. If we ever found the Ark of the Covenant, archaeologically, I don't know what that would really look like, because according to Scripture, according to God, that this is uh, when this was created, no one was to touch it. But if anyone would touch it, they would surely die. In fact, this happened when King David was trying to move the, the Ark of the Covenant from one place in the land of Israel to another. It stumbled, and somebody touched it, and they immediately died. And so I would have a great deal of fear and trepidation if 
archaeologists truly discovered and found the location of the Ark of the Covenant. And what that looked like inside the Ark of the Covenant, man, I, we don't know. Are all of those things perfectly preserved inside the Ark of the Covenant? Is there a jar of manna in there that is as good and fresh today as the day it fell to the ground and the children of Israel gathered it? I believe that's very possible, but until that happens, we may never know. But again, we're understanding what is the function of this ark. There's many fascinating things. We can talk for a great amount of time talking about the details of this. But it's amazing. There's one thing I always love pointing out is that this ark was actually three boxes in one. See, it was a box made out of acacia wood, but then it was covered inside and out with gold. So there's gold on the inside, there's wood between the middle, and there's gold on the outside. The perfect, beautiful example of three things becoming one in form and function. And what's amazing is those things, the, the first one and the last last one are two pure things made of gold, and the one in the middle is made out of wood, something that's temporary or corruptible. And this is a perfect example of the three persons of God in the example where you have the Father, the creator of heaven and earth, you have the Son who was who came down on earth, dwelt as a man as a mortal temporary vessel, and then you have the Holy Spirit, which is another part of God, and you see all three things coming in to form one. Now, I'm not talking about the doctrine of the Trinity that comes from other religions. I'm talking about the very way that God manifests himself according to scripture and that we have even an example of that in the form and the creation of the Ark of the Covenant. It's also interesting, the very word ark that is used here is the Hebrew word aron, which means ark or box, but it is also often used for the word coffin. At the very last verses of the book of Genesis, Joseph died in Egypt and it says he was placed in a coffin. Same Hebrew word aron is used for coffin as well as the ark of the covenant. This is in, uh, in contrast to the other Hebrew word taba, which is used for ark, which is used when we're talking about Noah's ark, or the ark that Moses was placed in on the river Nile so that his life might be preserved. That's a different Hebrew word. This Hebrew word that can simply mean box or coffin, why would it have the same honor when we're talking about the ark of testimony? Again, it has to do with the what is placed in the box is what gives it its value or what its function is. Because we have a box, we have something that can be used either for a coffin. If something, if someone is dead and is placed inside a coffin, then the form and the function of the box is that it holds dead things. But if you have another box or an ark, and then the things that are put in that represent life, then you then suddenly have a whole new meaning and a representation of what that ark is is. What is placed in the box determines what the function is. And believe you me, everything having to do with this arc of testimony has to do with life. We're talking about the commandments and the testimony of God that are placed inside of it. That these commandments, it's told that we may live by them. That this is all about life. Aaron's rod that will be placed is a rod that was sprouted with life from, a, from what used to be dead. All about life. Manna, the bread from heaven, represents life. Life giving uh, sustenance to the people, to the children of Israel, is what was in this ark. And so we must look and understand all of this has to do with God's mercy and God's life that is being given to us. But of course, there is a warning here. These things belong to God. 
This is these are God's furnishings that are in His house. They're not for any of a, any common man to come and to offend. And He says, "You touch that thing, and you will die." And we, God is establishing His house and establishing it in a way, in an order that actually any man who's ever owned a home, he will understand this purpose and this principle. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later. Again, we have now built the very first furnishing talking about this Ark of the Covenant. The next thing that is being built, beginning at verse 23, is the table of showbread. Sometimes called also that it houses what is called the bread of presence. Verse 23, you shall make a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length. A cubit, its width. Its cubit, it... Um, with and a half its height, and you shall overlay it with pure gold, and make a molding of gold around it. And you shall make a frame that is a handbreadth all the way around, and you shall make a gold molding for a frame around all around, and you shall make for it four rings of gold, and put the rings on the four corners that are at its four legs. And the rings shall be close to the frame as holders for poles to bear the the table. And you shall make poles of acacia wood, overlay them with gold, and the table shall be carried with them. And you shall make its dishes, its pans, its pitchers, and its bowls for pouring. And you shall make them of pure gold, and you shall set the showbread on the table before me, Always. So God has now built and established a, um, he's built a chair for him, a throne for him to sit in. And now he is now asking for a table to be built, a table that will have bread on it. And it is to have bread on this table always. As I said, God is establishing his house and his dwelling. And you can start to see the form and the function of it that he is desiring for a place to be glorious here. Then not only a place that has this beautiful looking furniture, but also the function of a table and what is on that table, fresh baked bread. This is bread that was to be baked by the priesthood. And there was fresh bread on it that was made every single week. And there was always to be bread on this table. One of the miracles of the tabernacle and the temple in the future was that this bread, whenever it was, when a week was up and they were ready to put new bread on there, the bread that came off of the table was distributed amongst the priests. And the testimony is, is that that bread tasted as fresh as it was, as if it had been baked fresh that day, even though it had been sitting out in the presence of God for a week. That's one of the reasons that I believe that there is life in the presence of God. There is nothing that is not of Him that is within His presence. Any sort of thing that might be that we would imagine bread sitting out on a table, we would think of bacteria and mold that would cause bread to spoil. These are things that scientifically, as far as we could tell, weren't present in the presence of God. That this bread did not mold or spoil in the presence of God. That is the other thing that leads me to believe that that jar of manna inside that Ark of the Covenant is probably as fresh as the day it fell to the ground. Because within, with the presence of God, there is life and there is healing and there is not that spoilage that we have that's corrupted by the rest of the world. The God is establishing his house. The next thing he asks for to be built is a gold lampstand, the menorah. And he says this, You shall also make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be of hammered work. Its shaft and its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs and its flowers shall be of one piece. And six branches shall come out from its sides. Three branches of the lampstand out on one side and three branches of the lampstand out on the other side. Three bowls shall be made like 
almond blossoms on one branch with an ornamental knob and a flower and three bowls made like almond blossoms on the other branch with ornamental knobs and a flower. And so for the six branches shall come out from the lampstand. On the lampstand itself, four bowls shall be made like almond blossoms, each with its ornamental knobs, a knob and a flower. And there shall be a knob under the first two branches of the same, and a knob under the second two branches of the same, and a knob under the third two branches of the same, according to the six branches that extend from the lampstand. Their knobs and their branches shall be of one piece, and all of it shall be one hammered piece of gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and you shall arrange the lamps so they give light in front of it. And its wick trimmers and its trays shall be all shall be of pure gold. It shall be made of a talent of pure gold with all these utensils. And see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown to you on the mountain. Once again, we have this exacting detail of what God wants this lampstand to look like. There's all of these details of what these knobs and these almond blossoms and these bowls and what they appear to look like. And if you want to look and find, there are many examples of what we actually believe that this looked like, that these knobs were present in each branch as it came down into the center shaft. But again, what's interesting about this furnishing versus the other two. You might not have noticed it. The other two gave exact dimensions on how many cubits high, wide, and deep that it was to be. As for, as for this lampstand, never was it given any dimension or measurement for how tall it was, how many cubits tall, how many handbreadths something was from another thing. That detail was not given. Why was that? Why would that be? Well, many people have speculated what that is, and they also speculate how big could this lampstand have actually been. One talent of gold is, is a pretty good-sized chunk of gold, and gold is very malleable, and we really don't know how far out this could have been stretched to, exactly what the width of the branches were, and but it was all made of one hammered piece. All right, so we have something that was made that was made of one, that it was one, it was whole, it was, it was singular and whole together. And then it was hammered, pressed, and crushed out to some immeasurable distance to not know truly how big and wide and how much that one hammered piece could be spread out to. And then this, of course, is it produced light. Its function was to light up the place where it was. Now, for those of us that are New Testament believers, I can take you here to the tabernacle, and man, I could share an amazing message about Yeshua the Messiah and how he is how this menorah can represent him. As I said before, something that was one, something that was whole, as he said, I and the Father are one. And he was hammered and he was crushed and he was pressed and so that he might be and his testimony might be the light to the world. And how large that that is, what his ability to save and his ability to be the light unto the world, that is an immeasurable amount. We don't know how many people he can reach to be saved, to bring all the people back out of the nations so that they might dwell safely in the land, that they might return back to the covenant of God. It's an immeasurable amount. That is the example and the teaching that we can teach from the gold lampstand is that we don't know how big it was. We don't know how it's immeasurable as far as we know, as far as we can tell. And this is so interesting how these things all combine together. The Ark of the Covenant, the Table of Showbread, the Gold Lampstand, and all of these things. And we see the symbolism of God himself 
in these furnishings. One other thing you might not have noticed, very fascinating. When we made the Ark of the Covenant back in chapter 10, it said this, And they shall make an ark of acacia wood. However, when we built the table of showbread in verse 23, it says, You shall make a table of acacia wood. And when we made the gold lampstand, it said, You shall make a lampstand. Why would the Ark of the Covenant be given instruction that it says they shall make it while the other ones are you? What I believe that that is and the teaching we can learn from that is this, is that the Ark of the Covenant where God dwelt, where his, his presence was, that from he will judge his people and speak to us from above the mercy seat. That access to God is available for all of the congregation. When we pray and go into the presence of God spiritually, that His mercies and His judgment of Him sitting on the throne is available to all who would come and approach Him. His judgments and His commandments and His loving kindness that extends from His presence on top of that mercy seat is for all. That's when it's, that's why I believe it says that they shall make the ark, but when it comes to the other things that those are sometimes an individual act of having to do with an individual person. Those, uh, the other furnishings were inside the sanctuary, not in the Holy of Holies. Because as we build this tabernacle and establish it, the Ark of the Covenant will be in the what is called the Holy of Holies. It will have a veil in front of it, and it will be in its own isolated room. A place that is most holy, that we were not allowed to go physically. But then the high priest was allowed to go in once a year, to make atonement on the day of atonement there into that place. And spiritually, we all desire to go into that place where God's presence is pure and true, and that is when we have the most intimate encounter with the Most High God. Whenever anybody went into the sanctuary, which was outside of the veil and the Holy of Holies, outside of the Holy of Holies, that's where the menorah was, that's where the table of showbread was, that's also where one more furnishing that won't be talked about until next week's portion will also be built and established, and that's the golden altar of incense that represents our prayers to the Most High God. And so when we go in, we are to go into that place with reverence, and it's on an individual basis. But the thing that we remember is the judgment and the covenant that God gives to us from His presence in the Holy of Holies, that is available, and we and I like to believe that that is available to all who might pray to the Lord and ask of Him. As we go into chapter 26 of Exodus, this is where the whole construction changes. Now we're building the walls and the coverings that go over the sanctuary and the Holy of Holies. We're building these furnishings, and then now we're building the covering that is outside of it. Very fascinating way to look at this, and many people have, have looked at this, that when God is describing the construction of these things, we're building it from the inside out. God is wanting to create and establish to see what is on the inside of us. And now the outside is important as well, but what's more important to God is what is on the inside of his dwelling. Again, what is the function of this place? It's the same thing as a man who would sit here and he sees a plot of land and says, I want to build a house. Now, when we go to build the house, what we will start with is a foundation and we'll put up walls and studs and coverings in there. And then we would move the furnishings and the things into the house. But go back to the... Go back to the spiritual nature of building a house, the psychology. Why does a man want to look at an empty lot and build a house? 
Well, first of all, he wants a place to rest his head. So what might be in his mind as a place where he wants to build his house, the first thing he might be thinking of is, where am I going to rest my head? Where is my bed going to be? Where is my chair going to be? All of these things that are going to go into the house is the reason why we're building the house. Even though when we construct it, we might construct it from the outside in, spiritually, the function and the reason for the construction is from the inside out. That is what God is doing as he is building and establishing his house. Chapter 26 has a great amount of detail talking about the coverings of the tabernacle. Before we even talk about the actual boards and the structure that will hold up the covering, he first describes what the coverings are going to be. Very fascinating that there's going to be four layers of coverings that cover the sanctuary. The first one that goes over the top is the one that you can visibly see when you are inside the sanctuary. And that covering will be this beautiful woven fabric of blue, purple, and scarlet material, also mixed with fine linen and with threads of gold. That all of those things would be woven together to create one single pattern with all of these colors and all of these beautiful fine materials. That these, these colors, first of all, if you think about those colors, these are the colors of royalty. These are the colors that were only worn by only the most, the, the, the highest of society is the ones that these colors represent. And that is exactly what we're establishing with God's tabernacle, was we are creating a royal palace for God to dwell in. Now, if you were to see this fabric, it would have been this amazing, I mean, you'd just be looking at it for hours trying to figure out, man, it's like all the colors, they all weave together, they form one pattern, but then they also have, uh, you know, you can see some of the individual things. One of the things that I love looking at the way that this, I believe this fabric kind of looked, is it almost looked like the inside of a human body. Let me explain. If you were to ever look at a diagram of what the human circulatory system, what you would see is you would see all of these all these capillaries and all of these these things woven inside a body where you have um, where you have red for the arteries and blue for the veins and that you would have all of these things woven together along with your lymphatic system and other parts and forms and functions of the body and it's this and medical diagrams show this amazing colorful structure of what makes us who we are and inside the tabernacle, you almost have the same similar look to the inside of the sanctuary and way, the way this fabric was woven. Because what is being established here, and many teachers have spoken a lot before as well, is that the tabernacle itself has these amazing parallels and patterns to the human body and the structures of the human body. Then the same way God is creating a physical dwelling for himself is the same also way, the same creativity that God used to create the world and create uh, our human bodies is the same creativity being used in the construction of his tabernacle. The other layers that come on top of that is that you'd have the linen, the blue, the purple, the scarlet, all these beautiful things. Then you'd have goat's hair on top of that. Something that would have been a more neutral color, but it would have been a, a still a natural covering that would go over the tabernacle. The third covering was ramskins dyed red that were also placed over the tabernacle. And the last one is this skin that in the Hebrew is called the Tekesh skins. 
Um, I said in my in my New King James, it translated this as badger. Other translations tra- translated as porpoise skins. The modern translation of the word tahash actually means dolphin. And so one of the understandings is what was this skin, this outer covering that was on the tabernacle? Some people have speculated and said, well, surely this could had to have been a clean animal. A clean animal is, is, is the skin that was provided for this. Other people say, and other rabbis say, that it most definitely was probably an unclean animal. We don't know what it was. There's um, commentaries that go back uh, centuries within Jewish literature that believe that this skin actually was something from possibly like a rhinoceros skin. And that whenever, um, I remember a few years ago, I saw that he had revealed, the fossil record revealed, there was such a thing as called the Siberian unicorn, which was a giant rhinoceros with a huge horn, and it was very large animal. And that it's now gone extinct, but I remember looking at that and somebody sent it to me and they said, hey, could this have been the Tehash? And I'm like, it absolutely could have been. It could have been a woolly mammoth for all we know. It was a skin that we don't know in the fossil record what it represented. The reason why I believe that it most likely was actually an unclean animal is because the representation of the layers represents that the outermost layer that was in the presence of the outer court and in the presence of the rest of the world, this is the part that everyone in the world could see. That's the layer that's unclean. Why? Because the world and the corruption in the world has to be there on the outside is what causes it to be unclean. In the same way that the layers and what is underneath is pure and precious. Same thing with our human body. We exist in the world. We, we have kids that run around. They go play in the mud. They become dirty. They get dirt all over their skin. Their skin is most definitely unclean. Before we ever let them come in and to eat a meal or to come into the presence of the rest of the family, what's the first thing we tell them to do? Go wash your hands. Wash your hands. Wash off the dirt and the uncleanliness that is on your skin. Clean that. And then we can start talking about the food that you're going to eat that's going to go into your body. Because everything that's inside our bodies, our organs, that is most definitely precious. The life that God has given to us, the heart and the organs that beat inside of our bodies, those are precious things. Our skin is this unclean thing that interacts with the rest of the world that protects the most important and the most precious things that are inside our body. The skin is our very first line of defense from something that unclean might come into our body and might hurt us or harm us, such as a bacteria that comes into our body and we instantly get sick. And then we have our immune system that has to combat those things. And there are certain forms of bacteria, protozoa, viruses, that if they were able to surpass all of our natural defenses in our body and if they could get into our heart or get into our mind, it would kill the body entirely. In the same way in the tabernacle, there are many unclean things that are unacceptable to be in the presence of God. If any of those things were able to make it past all of the outer coverings and the layers of protection, be it the veils, be it the priesthood that would prevent something unclean from coming into the presence of God, if something were to get into that presence of God, it would defile it. That place would have to be torn down. It would then be unacceptable for God to dwell in that place if any of those unclean things made it into the most holy, into the most precious place. That's why we establish this order. That's why we establish this structure and this, uh, this protection that goes over it. And it, yes, the rest of the world, everything outside of it is unclean. But what is inside is precious and is holy. And again, it's fascinating. You look at this. If you go online, if you want to look up just four layers, 
and look at that. There are various structures of our body that all have four layers to it. The layers of the flesh of our heart has four layers to it. Our bones, according to science, has four layers to it. Our esophagus lining has four layers to it. Our stomach, our intestines, our trachea, and our bladder all have four layers to the flesh and the organ that is that makes up that thing, that structure that functions within our body. This whole idea of these four layers is very important to the construction of God. Scientifically, we have it inside our body. Physically, God has it covering his sanctuary that is here on this earth. Also, the earth, scientifically, they believe that it also has four layers. You have the crust, the mantle, the inner core, and the outer core. Four layers of the earth that have been created. This whole four-layer business is very much tied to many different aspects of creation, making this tabernacle important to the idea of creation. Something else that's amazing and fascinating as well. We start to see some things in this tabernacle that will remind us of the Garden of Eden, going all the way back to the beginning. One of the last times we ever heard of the idea of two cherubim being present or guarding something, we have to go back to the garden that when Adam was kicked out of the garden, there were two cherubim that were stationed there protecting the entrance back into the garden. It's So it makes perfect sense for God's presence here that cherubim are present guarding the entrance into the presence of God. Not only are the two cherubim constructed and molded on top of the mercy seat, two cherubim were also woven into the veil that separated the Holy of Holies and the Holy Place. And also, whenever you would exit the tabernacle, you would always exit heading to the east. In the same way that when Adam was cast out of the garden, he was cast out from the garden toward the east. The entrance to the tabernacle and into the Garden of Eden was on the eastern side. This has led many people to believe and study going into the parallels between the tabernacle and the temple of God to the very creation of the earth all the way back to the garden and that you can relate it all the way back to that Adam was the first priest of God who did the service of the priesthood in the presence of God. In the same way that Adam was commanded in the scripture in Genesis chapter 2 to keep and work the garden. The exact same Hebrew words are commissioned of the Levites in the first part of the book of Numbers that says they are to keep and work the services of the tabernacle. There is a pattern and a parallel between this construction and this tabernacle being made and the function of the priesthood goes all the way back to Adam and his function in the garden and why mankind was placed on this earth to begin with. We were placed in the presence of God. God was given us, he he has chosen to dwell amongst his people and that he has given us a place and an established order as to where we can be in the presence of God. And that is what the tabernacle represented. Now, for an unclean people who have rejected the covenant of God, God has created a substitutionary system. He's created a priesthood that does these functions for us because we have acted in an unclean and an unworthy manner that we ourselves don't walk into this place, but we need ourselves an intermediary. And as we go into next week's portion, we will most definitely be talking about that when you're talking about the establishment of the high priest. 
and that the Messiah himself, Yeshua, is described in the New Testament as our high priest, that as we have created a system of an intermediary, intermediary that goes to God, that acts between God and between, uh, between God and us. In the same way that the Messiah said, no one goes to the Father except through me. Believe you me, nobody went into the sanctuary or the, or the holy place in the tabernacle except through the act of the high priest. God is establishing his order for us. His order of his dwelling place, of his tabernacle. And what it is to be when we want to go into the dwelling place, we, there's an order to it. And we need somebody who stands in the gap in between us and the judgment of God. And that is why we have a faith in Yeshua. That is what he represents to us as our high priest, that he is the intermediary between us and God. And all of it is all within this form and this function. Now, as we go through, if we continued on into chapter 27 of Exodus, a couple more things are constructed and created. After the sanctuary and all the things are placed inside the sanctuary, we then have the altar of burnt offering. We have the bronze, the brazen altar that was outside. This is where the sacrifices were made to God. This is where he offered burnt offerings and we offered peace offerings and sin offerings were all placed upon this right here. Now, this brazen altar. And what would most often happen, and one of the things that God most delighted in, is somebody bringing a free will peace offering to God. This is what the people could do when they came into the tabernacle. They bring a free will gift offering to God. They come, they would bring it because they love God. Not because they sinned, but because they loved God. And what would happen with that sacrifice is it would go upon this altar into the outer court where somebody is getting close to the dwelling place of God. And this would be cut. It would be cooked, it would be cooked upon this altar, and then parts of it would be removed and given back to the person giving it, so that they themselves might get to feast on the offering that they brought before God. This whole act and this whole service, inside this outer court and going into the presence of God and dwelling with God, man, there are patterns and parallels that we do in our day-to-day -day lives, any man, any family that has ever had a home, and you've ever invited somebody over for a nice meal, you have inadvertently repeated the pattern of what God did inside His tabernacle, inside His tent. Because what do you ask if you're ever going to have a nice, uh, an honored guest come into your home? What is it that you ask them to do? You ask them to bring something. In fact, in a, somebody who's respectful and humble will ask, what can I bring? Whenever you invite somebody over into your home. And you have them bring something. And then what happens is when you come together into the place, into this dwelling, you know what you might do? You might have, you might grill something. Really nice. You'll use some steaks. You'll grill up some ribs. Whatever it might be. Beef ribs. And you would serve those to your guest. And you would all partake in that. And you would come into the home. And inside that home that you're invited into, there'll be a table. If you have a really honored guest and you're, and, and somebody's really, you're really like somebody, you know what you might do? You might have, you might bake some fresh bread that day. And when they walk into the home, just their senses are overwhelmed with the smell of fresh baked bread. Maybe as they're walking up to the house, they would smell the meat on the grill. And when you'd sit down, you'd have wine with it. And well, by the way, wine was offering, offered on the tabernacle as well. And maybe you'd light some candles and you'd have a beautiful meal together with an honored guest. Everything I'm describing that you would establish in your own home is exactly what you would experience if you ever came to the tabernacle to bring a peace offering to God. 
you would smell the savor of the of the sacrifice as you approached. Maybe you might have some nice music playing when your guest arrives. That happened in the tabernacle as well. The priests would play music and there'd be hymns going on as you entered into the presence and into the house of God. Now, if you were invited into the holy place, then that's when things would start to, we'd start to do some business with the Lord here. That's where the smell of fresh baked bread was. That's where the beautiful light of the, of the menorah was. And that's where the golden altar of incense, where you would come and you would worship the Lord and you would pray to Him. And the incense that came off of that altar, that again, we'll describe that in next week's portion, was to be the prayers of the saints. And that you went in and you did business with God. And you were invited in as an honored guest. However, there are servants in the house. You're not to walk in and just walk into some place willy-nilly as you choose to desire. There were servants that were to direct where your place is. When you go to somebody's house, you don't just go and sit down wherever. People, they show you what seat you're to sit in, where you are to join in. What's the order of the house? Some houses you go into and, get, and the owners of the house request that you remove your shoes. Such was the same for the tabernacle. That all of the priests were barefoot, that they were to remove their sandals and walk barefoot. And so that the sense of touch was overwhelmed in them as they walked in the holy place in the presence of God. The, all of these, some of these same patterns and principles that we do in our own homes was present in the tabernacle as well. There was an order, there was a structure to it, there was a plan and a purpose, there were servants to guide you to wherever you were to sit or whatever you were to go and what you were to do. So much so that there also were places that you were absolutely not to go. If anyone walked into the tabernacle and walked straight into the Holy of Holies, they'd be put to death right away. If God didn't do it supernaturally, you better believe the priest would, would make sure that nothing unclean came into that place. It's the same kind of offense. And, and you would think, and you'd be like, God, this was, your, this was one of your people. These are one of the people that you invited in, and all they did was, was offend us. It's like, yeah, you're right. But if they do, and they pull some sort of offense that is not holy according to me, they're not going to be my friend anymore. In the same way that if you had an honored guest come into your home, if they just sort of threw their jacket down and decided to walk back into your bedroom, what would you do? Would you throw the person out? You're darn right you would. Because he has offended a piece of your property that does not belong to him. Bedroom is private and intimate. That's where me and my wife sleep. That's where our clothes are. This is a place that is off limits to anyone coming in as an honored guest into my home. God's tabernacle is the exact same. God has a place where his seat, where his couch is, where he dwells. It's intimate to him and it's not supposed, no one is supposed to go into that place. The Lord is the exact same. We have to learn and understand what is our place that God is holy and he establishes this order. And we must learn how to fall into place when he, we have been invited in into his dwelling. <coughs> Excuse me. God has created. <coughs> he starts with a chair, a place for him to sit and a place for him to dwell. <coughs> In the same way that how many dads in the history of time ever had a lazy boy that whenever the children tried to sit there or anyone else tried to sit there, what did you say? That's dad's chair. Nobody sits in dad's chair. That's dad's chair. 
See, even from the simplest instruction that we even give to our kids from early on, we are establishing the same sort of order that God has inherently put in us as human beings, as creations, as that we have been made into the image of God. So we even have these natural functions in our own lives that pattern after how God has established his home as well. This is what's being built here. And everything that I'm describing all has to do with life, how we live life, how God has given us life. And then we choose and we want to dwell in a, in a house. We want to dwell safely and securely and comfortably. And we would like to have a steak on our, on our plate. And we'd like to have fresh bread. And we'd have to have like a candlelight dinner. Everybody loves something like that. That sounds great. That's what God wants as well. It boils down to the most simple aspect God is showing us the pattern of why we are the way we are because he's describing who he is. And we are made in the image of God. God desires for his image, the image that he created, to come back in to his presence. Here in the tabernacle, I need to conclude with this, but I'll go into this a little bit more as we have many weeks to talk about the tabernacle. I do want to talk about this. God's temple and his tabernacle that's being established here, it does not have an image of God in it. Every other pagan religion, every other pagan temple, they create some big statue or representation of the God they worship. It has a face, though it has eyes, though it can't see. It has ears, though it can't hear. And it's some big stone representation of the God they serve. Nothing like that is built in the temple of God. Why? Because God created us in his image. The image, we're not to create some stone graven image of who God looks like or what he represents. What he instead wants is he wants his image that he created and he patterned after himself. He wants that to go into the presence of him with all the other furnishings and all the other tabernacle. And then and only then is the image of God in the temple. That's what God wants us to do. He wants to dwell with us. He wants to dwell within us. And he wants us to be in the same place in the presence of one another. Because that is the perfect way that God established the, from the very beginning of creation. His image in his presence. In the most holy place. That's why he created the garden. That's why he created Adam. And here we're trying to get back to that. This establishment and the order of the tabernacle, is its whole goal is to get us back in the presence of God just as we were in the Garden of Eden. May I submit that the study and the instruction of this tabernacle is very important to us as believers in God, as believers of the Most High, and that is why so much scripture is devoted to it. So that as a primer going into the next couple of weeks where we'll be able to talk about and I hope to bring out many more nuances of the tabernacle, what its form was, what its function was, and what it means to us even modern day as believers, even though we don't have a temple and a tabernacle today, I hope to bring out all of this instruction to encourage you to know that it matters greatly to you, your heart, and you as a clean and upright believer who has the presence of God dwelling within them. So I hope that we are encouraged by that today on this Sabbath day and for the next several weeks. Let us pray.
Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day. We thank you, Lord, as we go into the instruction and the teaching of the establishment and the building of the tabernacle, Lord. May you open our spiritual eyes, our spiritual ears, to understand what these words mean to us, how we are to build and establish our hearts and our homes to be fit vessels for you to dwell into. So, Father, I pray that it be more than just words on a page, that it be more than just numbers and units of measurement and and types of materials, Lord, that it would spiritually be the very instruction that nourishes our body and causes us to turn our hearts to you. Father, I pray that you give us clean hands and a pure heart, Lord, and that you dwell within your people, Lord. That you desire to dwell within your people, Father. We thank you for everything that you've done and all of the instruction that you have given to us. May you bless us, encourage us, and strengthen us each and every week as we dig into your word and your instruction. And may it minister to us and encourage us to be better followers of you, doers of your Torah and your commandments. And Father, may we always put your righteousness and your justice inside our hearts, Lord, and write your commandments within our souls. So we love you, bless you, and thank you. On this Sabbath day, Lord, we thank you in Yeshua's name. Amen. Now let me do the blessing after the Torah. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Asher Natanlanu Torah Temet Fachayalam Nata Betocheinu Baruch Adonai Nonten HaTorah Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of the Universe, who has given us the Torah of Truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, Giver of the Torah. Amen. you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. When the sun has set on a Friday night, bringing peace into your home. Families will gather all around saying, yeah, Shabbat Shalom. Everybody sing. Shalom, 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 